0: Thank you, Marianne and Janie. I really love that. Uh, sang from a heart, from the heart. Praise the Lord. If your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 15 this morning. We want to look at verses 29 through 39, healing and feeding Gentiles. Hey, Gentiles, this is about you this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word now, and uh, we do thank you for your amazing grace. Uh, how, how privileged we are to know you, to serve you, to love you. And, uh, Lord, we commit our time in the Word now. Speak to our hearts. Thank you for speaking to us today. The living God, you are uh, speaking to us through the living Word uh, by way of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, have your way in our hearts as we listen. Uh, May we have ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Matthew, and uh, you will note uh, the theme of the book is uh, Christ the King, and we have worked our way down through the book to that section in chapters 14 through 16, the revelations of the king. And uh, as we work our way through the book, we see more and more that Israel, via her religious leaders in particular, rejecting Jesus as Messiah Lord. And we see Christ's response was more and more to build privately into his disciples. And also the trend to reach out to the Gentiles. In the previous section in Matthew 15, we saw Jesus way up north in the Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon. And there, a woman of Canaanite ancestry approached Jesus to help her with her demon-possessed daughter. Was well, she initially appealed to him on the basis of the Davidic covenant, in effect, calling Jesus the Son of David. Well, Jesus responded by saying that he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In response, the woman then worshipfully responded to Jesus, strictly on the basis of who he is as Lord, acknowledging her unworthy position as a lowly Gentile, but at the same time requesting Only a few crumbs that fall from the master's table. Well, Jesus honored this as great faith and granted her desire. If you come to Jesus as Lord, he will respond to you, no matter who you are. And that's the point. The miracles that now follow up in Gentile territory in relation to Gentiles essentially follow up on this emphasis showing that indeed, although Gentiles are in a secondary role, yet Jesus has blessing for them too as they come to him and believe on him as Lord. In Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, the Gentiles more and more come into the picture. If Israel rejected the main meal, so to speak, Then the Gentiles would gladly feed off of the crumbs. The miracles of healing and his feeding the multitudes of the Gentiles that follows the story of the Canaanite woman serve to show that the Gentiles also have a part in God's program. Gentiles who come to faith will ultimately share in the kingdom banquet. Yes, the kingdom comes through Israel. Make no doubt about that. But in the meantime, Gentiles who come to faith also share in Messiah's blessing. That is the concluding message here in Matthew 15. Yes, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. That's the message of the text. We pick it up, verse 29. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Now, the cross-reference to what we are studying here in Matthew 15, 29 through 39, is found in Mark 7:31 through chapter 8, verse 10. And Mark 7.31 is more specific about where Jesus went after leaving the region of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, we read there in Mark chapter 7 and verse 31, Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. So uh, if you note on the map here, he was uh, way up here in this region. Tyre and Sidon. Now he's made his way skirting uh, the Sea of Galilee. He's come down here into Decapolis somewhere. And so this is interesting. Up here in Gentile territory, now makes his way down again into Gentile territory. Jesus, these days, for a number of months it would appear, was spending his time in Gentile territory. We're getting closer to the cross. Intensity is building in terms of the hostility in Jewish context against Jesus. He's spending some time in Gentile territory. So Jesus' movement at this point was from one Gentile area to another, both which were outside of Herod's jurisdiction. Now it seems that Jesus at this point was avoiding both hostile Judaism and also the hostile threats of Herod Antipas, who had killed John the Baptist. So, again, uh, note on the map here, uh, he was up here. Uh, This is uh, outside of Herod's territory. Uh, Herod Antipas is uh, the green here. That's the territory he had. Well, Christ is up here outside of Herod's territory. He makes his way down into Decapolis, which is also outside of Herod's territory. Outside of Jewish territory, both contexts. Outside of Herod's uh, territory, both contexts. So, just uh, setting the background here: Decapolis means ten cities. Uh, it was largely Gentile territory. Uh, this is the same area, by the way, where Jesus had earlier healed the demoniacs, as seen in Matthew chapter eight, verses twenty-three or twenty-eight through thirty-four. And these cities, these ten cities in Decapolis, there was actually like fourteen cities there, but ten were prominent. And these cities formed a league. And were authorized by Rome to largely run their own affairs. For example, the cities of Decapolis had their own courts. They had their own uh, minted coins. And so this uh, was kind of an area to itself. And it was largely Gentile, predominantly Gentile territory. Verse 30. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, mute, maimed, and many others... And they laid them down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. Just as happened in Jewish contexts, as we saw back in Matthew 14, for example. So now it also happened in this Gentile context. Jesus shows up on the scene and he is shown to be able to heal every malady concerning everyone. Note, there are no qualifiers here. It just says, and he healed them. Uh, They bring... Uh, All these people, the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others, all kinds of maladies, and he heals them. Uh, If you can do that, if you can uh, heal the multitudes, uh, just heal them all, uh, they'll show up. The multitudes will show up, and they did. This is reflective of two things. Jesus is the Messiah, and also that Jesus is Lord. As Messiah Lord, Jesus did these miracles in fulfillment of Messianic prophecy before Israel as part of his Messianic credentials, showing that indeed he was Israel's promised Messiah, performing kingdom miracles, and thus was truly offering the kingdom to Israel on the condition of repentance. We see this, uh, for example, in a kingdom context, a Messianic kingdom context, back in the book of Isaiah 35. It says there in verses 5 and 6, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For the water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is again a kingdom context, and Jesus the Messiah is doing kingdom miracles. This came first. The offer of the kingdom to Israel came first on the condition of repentance, Theoretically, if Israel had accepted Jesus as their Messiah, then the kingdom would have been ushered in through Israel, affecting the entire world. But that didn't happen. So then being rejected by Israel, the Messiah reached out to the Gentiles. That's the pattern in Christ's ministry and in the rest of the New Testament. The gospel goes first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles we see as we work our way through the book of Acts, first uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. And as this begins to work its way out in early church history, as we see in the book of Acts, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, speaking to the Jews. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have, set, I have sent you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. But note the order here. Uh, it was necessary, he says, that they said, that the word of God should be spoken to you first. First to the Jews. God's plan has always been centered in the Jews. But that doesn't mean he doesn't care about the rest of the world. He intended for the Jews to be the catalyst of blessing for the whole world. The Jews are God's special chosen people. And they still are today, by the way. We will see this uh, tonight. Uh, You know, it's interesting. I hate to get into tonight's sermon this morning, but since some of you won't be here tonight, I have to. Just Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. But uh, you know what's interesting? The Jews in rebellion are still God's chosen people. And even in rebellion, when the Gentiles pick on his chosen people, God does not appreciate it. They're still his chosen people. The covenants belong to them. And God's intention is to fulfill his kingdom plans through them. And this he will do when Israel finally comes to repentance. What are we waiting on? We're praying for the kingdom to come. What are we waiting on? What is God waiting on? He's waiting for Israel to come to repentance. And then the kingdom will come. It's not going to come before them. But in the meantime, the good news of God's salvation also goes to the Gentiles. They too can share in Messiah's blessing. Notice what they said. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles. At this point, as noted last week, it was not on the basis of covenant, but on the basis of faith alone in Christ's lordship that the Gentiles could appeal to Christ. As Messiah, Jesus came to Israel. The covenants are with Israel. But as Lord over all, even the Gentiles could share in the truth of Jesus. In John chapter 4 the Samaritans came to believe in Jesus as quote the savior of the world John 4:42 Jesus is the Jewish Messiah but beyond that he is the savior of the world for all who will believe in him. We know John 3:16, right? God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As Jesus went to the cross, he became not only the savior of believing Israel, but also of believing Gentiles. And today, this side of the cross, we as believers, now partake in new covenant blessings, which are relational blessings, related to the Holy Spirit, related to intimacy with God, related to forgiveness, related to a permanence in terms of our relationship with God. We now share in those new covenant blessings established by Christ's blood. However, at this point in Matthew 15, Christ hadn't been to the cross yet, had he? No. The new covenant was not yet established. And yet, even then, for the Gentiles, on the basis of faith in Jesus as Lord, as we saw last week, even for Gentiles, as seen in the faith of the Gentile centurion in Matthew 8, and the faith of the Gentile Canaanite woman, as seen last week in Matthew 15, even Gentiles could in a secondary sense know the blessing of Jesus as Lord, strictly on the basis of faith in him as Lord. Well, in Matthew 8, after the Gentile centurion demonstrated great faith in the person of Christ as authoritative Lord, Jesus said this. You remember how he said, you don't have to come to my house. Just say the word. Just say the word. And here's what happened then. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter 8, verse 10 and on. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, surely I say to you, I have not found such great faith. Not even in Israel. What did this century? He believed in the lordship of Christ. He believed in his lordship authority. All he had to do was say the word. Jesus called that great faith. And then he said this, And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. They're not just coming from Israel. Many are coming from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, those that it was really rightly targeted to to begin with, Israel, The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They won't go in. What's the problem? They rejected Jesus, his messianic lordship. The Gentiles accepted it. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way as you have believed. So let it be done for you. And his servant was healed the same hour. God's plan always included the Gentiles. His intention is to bless them through Israel. And if Israel rejects, then in a more secondary fashion, as in the Jew first, and then also to the Gentile, God blesses the Gentiles as well. In the servant section of Isaiah, that is Isaiah 42 through 53, this emphasis on Gentile inclusion repeatedly comes through. Note this in the servant section of Isaiah. I love these verses because you understand I'm Gentile by background. In uh, Isaiah 42, 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Speaking about the Messiah, uh, this is the servant section related to the Messiah. Give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles there it is, includes the Gentiles. Chapter 49, verse 6, indeed, he says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God always had the Gentiles on his radar as well, not merely the Jews. Yes, they were the favored people. But not to the end that it stops with them. God always intended to bless the world through Israel. Children's moment. Scriptures came through Israel. Messiah comes through Israel. Salvation is of the Jews, as Jesus said. Verse 31. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified who? The God of Israel. When it says they glorified the God of Israel, this is an indicator that this was essentially a gentile crowd. Israel would just praise God as their God. But the gentiles here recognized the power of the God of Israel working through Jesus. Hence they glorified the God of Israel as gentiles. To what extent these gentiles recognized Jesus as God incarnate is not clear. But they certainly recognized what he was doing was done by the power of God, and more specifically, by the power of the God of Israel. In the cross-reference, in Mark chapter 7, we read these words, Mark seven thirty-seven, And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. I mean, there was no case too difficult for Jesus. Bring him. Bring him. It wasn't just healing backaches and headaches. No, no. Uh, These were major cases. The deaf were hearing. The mute were speaking. To say they were impressed is an understatement. The Gentiles here were astonished beyond measure. In our common vernacular, it blew their minds. Verse 32. Now, Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Now, this is the very same pattern we saw in Matthew 14 in reference to the Jews. Jesus first healed their sick and then he fed the multitude. We now see the same pattern here in relation to the Gentiles. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now some have tried to say that the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14 and the feeding of the 4,000 here in Matthew 15 are really one and the same event. But I want to argue very emphatically that is not true. Uh, William MacDonald has a good summary statement. He says, "...careless or critical readers confusing this incident with the feeding of the 5,000 have accused the Bible of duplication, contradiction, or miscalculation. The fact is that the two incidents are quite distinct and supplement rather than contradict each other." Amen to that. Uh, note uh, the contrast here. Uh, we in uh, chapter 14, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, the Jews, and uh, now the feeding of the 4,000 in uh, Matthew 15 of the Gentiles. We got uh, contrast, feeding 5,000 versus 4,000. Primarily Jews versus primarily Gentiles. In Galilee, near Bethsaida, in the Decapolis, five loaves, two fish, seven loaves, and a few fish. Twelve baskets of scraps, leftovers, seven baskets of scraps. People with Jesus one day, people with Jesus three days, spring season, summer season. G- they tried to make Jesus king, and then no popular response. Clearly, major distinctions between these two accounts. Both Matthew 16, 9 through 11, and Mark eight seventeen through 19 record that that these were two different feedings. Jesus, in those accounts, says there was two different feedings. One cultural item to note is that the Jews commonly used smaller wicker baskets, while the Gentiles used larger woven baskets, which are designated by two different words. Uh, Paul was lowered down over the city wall of Damascus using one of these large baskets. And so I want you to note these two words because it is kind of significant here in terms of the, the discussion here as far as is there one or two incidents. In Matthew 14, 20, uh, coffinus refers to a small wicker basket which was used by the Jews. And then in Matthew 15, where we are now, verse 37, we'll bring out this word spurus, which refers to a large woven basket Used by Gentiles. Now in the next chapter, Jesus will remind the disciples of these two separate feedings. And in doing so, he made a distinction between these two words. Note what he says here in Matthew sixteen, nine and ten. Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand? And how many baskets you took up? The, The smaller baskets. Nor the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many large baskets spurs you took up. Jesus clearly makes a distinction between the two events. So clearly, there were two different feedings. Clearly, the first was Jewish oriented, while the latter was Gentile in orientation. Well, Jesus at this point was compassionately concerned about the multitude because they had now been with him for three days. And we're completely out of food. That's a problem when you got 4,000 people, not counting women and children. Maybe as many as like 12,000 or so. That's quite, a, that's quite a bunch of people, hungry people, three days in. And his concern was that if they were sent away, they would faint on the way. Now, Jesus had healed them, but at this point, he had compassion for their need of physical Nourishment. And, and you know, when you get a bunch of hungry people, it's, it's, it's challenging, right? It's challenging. Verse 33, Then the disciples said to him, where, where, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? <laughs> I, I wonder, I wonder, uh, wh- where? Uh, even though there are dissimilarities, there are also similarities between this feeding and the first in light of Christ at the earlier time feeding the 5,000 through the hands of his disciples, this question seems ridiculous. Had they so soon forgotten? I mean, what is this? Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness? Uh, ding, 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 ding. Jesus is here. Uh, we fed the, uh, they fed, the disciples fed the 5,000 just not too long before this, a few months before this. Well, what is the explanation for this? There are several explanations that the commentators offer up. Let me list some of them. Number one, some surmise that while the disciples were expecting the Jews to partake in the Messianic banquet, uh, kind of a fore preview of this in terms of the miracle that Jesus did in feeding the multitude, uh, while the disciples were expecting the Jews to partake of the Messianic banquet, they did not conceive of Gentiles participating in any anticipation of the coming Messianic banquet, and therefore Christ miraculously feeding the Gentile multitude was off their radar. Okay, we saw him do this with Jews, but he's not going to do this with Gentiles. That's one way of looking at it. Uh, Number two, another view is that after Christ rebuked the people for wanting more food, after feeding the 5,000, as we see him doing in John chapter 6... The disciples were reticent about bringing this idea up. Uh, That didn't go well. Maybe we don't want to go there. Number three, one commentator says, we must never lose sight of a human being's capacity for unbelief. (laughs) There's truth in that. Uh, And lastly, maybe this, another view is that the disciples had not forgotten and are being careful in terms of how they answer Jesus at this point. They acknowledge that they could never meet such a demand, saying, where could we get enough bread? But that is not to necessarily say they included Jesus in that statement. Perhaps they admit that as disciples they cannot do it, but at the same time are reluctant to try and press Jesus into doing something miraculous in view of his earlier rebuke of the crowd for seeking bread in John chapter 6. There's perhaps something to a balanced nuance in view here. But we note there is no rebuke from Jesus for unbelief on the part of the disciples at this point. He just instructs them on what to do, and they respond like they know the drill. And at this point, uh, from the earlier feeding event. Well, perhaps Jesus once again wants them to realize that apart from him, they are powerless to do anything about this situation and thus was seeking to reinforce this lesson. But this time, this time, in relation to the Gentiles. As one said, Jesus had no less power than before, and they had no more. Therefore, the answer was that they needed to rely on Jesus and take their cue from him, which it seems on this occasion they do. Verse 34. Jesus said to them, "'How many loaves do you have?' And they said seven and a few little fish. Now note that Christ once again expects them to do what they can. He didn't just say, no worry, just put it all away. I'll I'll just create. No, no. He asks them to do what they can and then he takes it from there. As they do what they can, then Jesus will do what they can't. And this is a great principle in life. Be responsible and do what you can humanly do. And then leave the rest with God to do what only he can do. We see this principle often in the scriptures. And it often relates to this whole issue of faith. Remember when David went out to fight Goliath? Remember what he said to the giant? He said, hey, big bad boy, you're going down today, right? Yeah, in so many words. But really, he said, the Lord's going to bring you down. Uh, Then all this assembly, he says, shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Yes, our hands are going to do it, but it's going to be God behind the scenes that brings it about. God does it, but he often uses feeble efforts and feeble resources in the process. God loves to do his work through us. That's what he's doing in the world today. And he does it in such a way that he gets the glory. Christ in John 15, 5 said, Without me you can do nothing. But at the same time, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. By ourselves we can do nothing. But with Christ's help we can accomplish all the things that he calls us to do. These are some of my favorite verses in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So here's the balance. Within ourselves, we have no sufficiency. But as we rely upon God, He makes us sufficient to accomplish His purposes in and through us. In this event of once again feeding the multitude, this lesson was being reinforced through the disciples. Who fed the 5,000? Well, the disciples. Where did they get the supplies to feed the 5,000? From Jesus, Who fed the 4,000? The disciples. Well, where did they get the supplies to feed the 4,000? From Jesus. There's the lesson. Verse 35. He commanded the multitude to sit on the ground. The Lord being the Lord is ever in charge. He makes the commands. He commanded. Uh, He and not the disciples or anyone else commanded the multitude to sit on the ground. Voice of authority. Voice of authority. I mean, when Jesus spoke, he spoke like the Lord. Uh, It happens. There's no question who's leading this whole whole thing here. Verse 36, And he took seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples. Ah, the disciples are involved in the loop here. Gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. Same pattern as we saw with the Jews earlier. Now the same pattern with the Gentiles. And once again, we see it's a creation miracle. After giving thanks in recognition of God's provision, Christ began to multiply the seven loaves and fish. And once again, we see Christ then giving the supplies to the disciples, who in turn feed the multitude. Christ once again fed the multitude, but he did it through the use of the disciples. This is God's consistent pattern. Now, God, being all-powerful, He doesn't need to use us. But He chooses to do so. And He wants to use you. And He wants to use me. Verse 37. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets full of fragments that were left. Note they all ate. Not just some of them. The whole large crowd consisting of 4,000 men, not counting women and children, Uh, There may well have been 12,000 or more people here. They all ate to the full. They weren't merely served appetizers. No, they all ate and they were all filled. Now this would have involved... Think about this. How long does it take 12 men to feed 12,000 people? Uh, This would have involved a drawn-out process. Feeding a large group, I mean... The servers, it would take a while for the servers to get around to 12,000 people. It must have been quite a scene. Can't you just see Peter and John making the rounds, uh, making sure you had enough? W- would you like more, sir? No, I'm full. Uh, yeah, just, just dealing with, you know, if you got 12,000 people, 12 disciples, each one has 1,000 people, that's going to take a while. And it would have required a lot of food. A lot of food. How much does it take to feed 12,000 people? I'll, I dare say you've never fed that many people, have you? Not a one time. And remember, these are hungry people. 12,000 hungry people. You know what hungry people do? They eat a lot. Hungry people eat a lot. You know, they say you don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry, right? You want to collect everything on the shelves. It's, it's also not too good to go out to a buffet when you're hungry. You're going to eat more than you should eat. Hungry people, they eat a lot. But Jesus fed them all to the full. Nobody said, oh, hey, we could have had a little more. They were all full. And when they were all done, they collected the leftovers consisting of seven large baskets. Remember, these baskets were large enough to hold an adult person inside, which is why the word for these baskets is translated as large baskets. I made reference to this in Acts chapter 9, you know, where in Damascus uh, it says uh, in relationship to Paul, Saul who became known as Paul. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul and, uh, the, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. He's not getting out of here. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. That's the same word here where it talks about they had seven baskets full of leftovers that they collected. Same word, large baskets. There's a lot of food collected, a lot of leftovers. Now we note that in both feeding miracles, it's precisely documented how much was left over. In the feeding of the 5,000 Jewish men, not counting women and children, there were 12 baskets left over. Now, in this passage, we are told that there is seven large baskets of leftovers. So, the count is precise, but the significance of it is not. In chapter 14, I noted that perhaps the Lord orchestrated this outcome to impress his provision upon the disciples, which happened to be numbered 12. I noted that a key emphasis throughout that text has to do with Christ testing, as it says there, and teaching the 12 disciples in particular. So perhaps uh, this sufficient provision, in excess of 12, is impressing being pressed upon the 12 disciples. God's grace is always over-the-top sufficient. Well, perhaps... Uh, but uh, we are not told here what the the special significance was in that case or in this case here either of the seven large baskets of leftovers. Uh, Clearly, we see that God's provision is more than sufficient. ESV study Bible has this note, maybe, maybe, seven usually symbolic of perfection or completion. That's very consistent in the Scriptures. Here, the number may symbolize the fullness of God's provision for all peoples, now including Gentiles, uh, the loop has come full circle, so to speak. As Israel rejects the kingdom, Gentiles increasingly come into view. Th- that's, a, that's a good thing to think about there. Verse 38. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Now a key distinction between this miracle of the feeding of the fi- uh, of the 4,000 and that of the earlier feeding of the 5,000 is that this feeding of the 4,000 seems to have been almost, if not entirely, Gentile in makeup. Bible Knowledge Commentary says, This miracle demonstrated that the Lord's blessing through His disciples would fall not only on Israel, but also on Gentiles. Again, we note the order, first to the Jew, Matthew 14, and then to the Gentile, Matthew 15. And this carries over, even as we get into the New Testament. We know this memory verse, right? Romans 1.16 where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first. And also for the Greek. Now, when you read that, do you feel slighted as Gentiles? No, we're just thankful to be included, right? It's like the Gentile would sign his, when he's writing to his Jewish, uh, Messianic Jewish friend, saying, he would sign off his letters, grafted in, but grateful. That's where we are. Bob Deffenbaugh says, And why do we find Jesus ministering to Gentiles in our text? It is because our Lord has already indicted the Jewish cities where he had ministered most for their unbelief. Our text is a preview of what we will see in Acts 10 and 11 when God sends Peter to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. It's Bob Deffenbaugh. David Gazek says, The way... The Messiah miraculously fed both Jews and Gentiles was a preview of the great Messianic banquet. This was greatly anticipated among the Jews of Jesus' day, but they were offended by the idea that Gentiles would also be included. And indeed, Jesus makes the point, they are ultimately included. The great emphasis in the miracle of Christ feeding the 4,000 Gentiles is that they too are included in God's great program of redemption. As the Jews rejected Christ... It made way for the Gentiles. And many of them accepted. Paul in Romans 11 verse 12 says, Now if they're, speaking of the Jews, Now if, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Boy, this has turned out in a really good way for us Gentiles. The Jews rejected, and it has resulted in spiritual riches for us as the Gentiles. Moody Bible commentary, the point, of this miracle's, the point of this miracle may be to indicate that Jesus would include Gentiles in the scope of his ministry and that they would participate in the great Messianic banquet that described the kingdom along with the Jewish people. Indeed, uh, this has great significance where it says in John 1, He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but... But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who he is, Lord, Lord God, Lord and Savior. As many as receive Christ on the basis of believing in his name, that is who he is, as Lord and Savior. Every individual who receives Christ by believing in him is thus made a child of God. And there are no exceptions. We know this, called the most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world, the world, the whole world, that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, these feeding miracles are prominent. The feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all four Gospels. While the feeding of the 4,000 is recorded only in Matthew and Mark. Now, eating with someone in the Bible is indicative of a fellowship. For example, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Dining with Christ is a picture of fellowship. When you eat with people, you talk heart to heart, at least if you're, <laughs> it's a, a good situation. And, and it's a picture of fellowship. I love this from the uh, Messianic Jew, Alfred Edersheim, who lived from 1825 to 1889. He said this, The Lord ended each phase of his ministry with a feeding. He ended his Galilean ministry with feeding the 5,000. He ended his Gentile ministry feeding the 4,000. And he ended his Judean ministry before his death on the cross with the feeding of his own in the upper room. Isn't that great insight? I love that. And in the kingdom, what are we going to do? Well, there's going to be a party. There's going to be a banquet in the kingdom. We read about it. Kingdom context, Isaiah 25. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people, all people, a feast of choice pieces. It's going to be good stuff. Good stuff. You like good steak? I think it'll be represented. (laughs) Hamburger? It'll be good. Whatever. A feast of choice pieces. A feast of wines on the lees. Of fat things full of marrow. Of well-refined wines on the lees. Boy, it's going to be good stuff. And then in Revelation 19, 9, He said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage. Supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Verse 39. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Uh, Various various variants uh, here. Uh, Magdalan is also one of them. Uh, Once again, we see Christ's lordship authority as he sends the multitude away. He got into a boat, came to the region of Magdala. Now, Magdala is thought to be the home of Mary Magdalene. Uh, Magdala was evidently just north of Tiberius. It was also called Delmanitha. So uh, here on a map, here's what we're looking at. Um, Tiberius is here. It's kind of on the shoulder, if you will, of the Sea of Galilee, up just north of Tiberias. So here he was. He was down over here, and he's come over here, Uh, to Magdala. This transition put Christ back into Galilee once again into Jewish territory. And immediately the conflict picks up where it left off between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders as we will see as we continue on into chapter 16, Lord willing, next week. Let me make some application as we wrap up this section. Miracles figure prominently in the earthly ministry of Jesus. In Matthew 14, we find Jesus healed the multitudes and then fed them. In Matthew 15, we find that Jesus, again, healed the multitudes and then fed them. The first related to the Jews, the second related to the Gentiles. But let me ask you, let me ask you, uh, thoughtful people, uh, let me ask you, what made Jesus' miracles so convincingly authentic? The reason I ask is because there's a lot of people today who claim to believe in miracles. And they're not all Christians. They claim to believe in miracles, and many even claim to believe in Jesus. But in truth, they have a different Jesus than what's represented in the Scriptures. They're way off base. Well, why would we say, well, the miracles that we read about are, are different why would, they might say, well, our miracles are just as valid. How do we know who is the real Jesus here? How can the real Messiah be determined? This week, I read the testimony of a converted, best-selling New Ager, a best-selling author, by the name of Doreen Virtue. Now, she explains how she was intrigued by healing crystals and healing techniques, also involving Jesus in the mix. She says, I immerse myself in yoga, Eastern meditation, astrology, divination, and other New Age practices. She says, quote, we believed your words create your reality. By the way, a lot of this superstitious type stuff has come in to Christian circles in a big way. We believed your words create reality. Many of us twisted Jesus' words to suggest that God would give you whatever you ask for. For me, Jesus functioned as a spirit guide. She made contact with Jesus who like a magic genie helped me make my wishes come true. She says, and she shares this, a turning point came one day when she happened to hear Alistair begged preaching on the radio. He was preaching a sermon titled Itching Ears out of 2 Timothy chapter 4. She was so convicted that it became a turning point in her life. The power of the word. She proceeded to read the whole Bible and in her words, quote, that changed everything. She says, quote, having to admit that I was wrong to the entire world, my books were published in 38 languages, has been deeply humbling. After seeking but never finding peace in New Age, I finally found it in Christ. And now, Doreen says, quote, please don't read my books anymore. In fact, she has another book that's come out, Deceived No More. Back to my question. How do we know who is the real Jesus here? People are all enamored by miracles. They love miracles. Doreen was intrigued by healing techniques of the new age. And there is a spiritual power there. The devil too has power. And she saw Jesus, Jesus. She saw Jesus as a means to help her in this regard. He was her spirit guide. When the, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, the Bible in Second 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, He will come, quote, according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. These miracles, my friends, will be very convincing. Satan, too, has supernatural power. He too can perform miracles. So, back to my original question. How can one know the true Christ from the false ones? From satanic counterfeits? You see, miracles in and of themselves are not sufficient. Here's the bottom line. The true Christ comes with a frame of reference called the Bible. He didn't just perform miracles in a vacuum. That, my friends, is the stuff of Satan. It's in a vacuum that is self-serving and self-oriented. Jesus said in John 5.43 that he came in the Father's name, that is, in accordance with what the Father had revealed in the Holy Scriptures. His life aligned with the scriptures at every point regarding his birth, genealogy, his character, his wisdom, his forerunner, and yes, then, in his miracles too, and ultimately his death and resurrection. It all aligned perfectly with scripture. But when the Antichrist comes, Jesus said he will come in his own name. He has no frame of reference, just all about him. He comes doing miracles. And making claims in a vacuum. That's the difference. And another thing. Satanic miracles are all about the wow factor. Sensationalism. Very flesh-oriented, self-oriented. Christ's miracles were very benevolent. For the greater good. The true Christ aligns with the truth of Scripture, with the whole counsel of God. And true faith sees this and embraces it. That is the point of believing that Jesus is... Are you ready for this? That is the point in believing that Jesus is the Christ. Which is a way of saying, we believe in Him as being the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. You understand? Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Christ was buried, and Christ arose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's why we know He's the real thing. We saw this last week in our study of the Canaanite woman who recognized Jesus as the Son of David. We saw in our study today, as the Gentiles recognized Jesus' ministry as being that of the God of Israel. This is a frame of reference to the God of the Bible. Did you, catch, did you catch what Doreen said? Reading the entire Bible changed everything. Let that sink in. If it's according to the Bible, it's true. If it's not according to the Bible, it's not true. This is truth as revealed from God. The true Christ is the Christ of the Scriptures, and everything about Him aligns perfectly with God's revealed truth. This is how we discern the true Christ in contrast to the false Christ. I don't care what kind of miracles they're doing. I don't care what kind of power you have. I don't care what kind of experience you have. Does it line up with Scripture? That's the ultimate issue. And in the last days, they will not endure sound doctrine, It's all about experience. It's all about me and what my genie is doing for me. As Revelation 19.10 says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. As such, Jesus fulfills all the Messianic prophecies related to the Jews and he fulfills all the prophecies also related to the Gentiles. Jesus is Lord over all. And he is Savior of all who will believe in his name. And his name is Lord. He's the Messiah Lord. This is the ultimate question. Have you believed on the Christ of the Bible? It's in believing in Christ who died for our sins according to the scriptures. Who was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. It's believing in this Christ that we have eternal life. Let's stand and have our concluding song.